Yo, what's going on, podcast family? Danny, and I'm sitting here with Derek. Hey, hey, what's going on? So uh, this is going to be uh, the episode that ends 2023 but brings in 2024. I'm not sure uh, really when it's going to drop. It's either going to be right at the end of the year or right at the beginning of the year. Either way, this was super interesting. It kind of upped the echelon of our guest that we have on. Uh, this was Mr. Jack Guerrero, who is currently running as a candidate for Riverside County Supervisor. Um, Derek, unfortunately, was not there during this episode, but uh, he did listen. He liked it as well. Um, and uh, it was just Jack and I. We sat down and spoke for a little bit. Derek was at his AmFest event. You want to talk a little bit about that, bro? Yeah, it was a good time. It was held by Turning Point over in Phoenix for a couple of days with Blexit. Uh, shout out to Blexit. Thanks for uh, you know having me. Um, yeah, but met a lot of new people, made a lot of new connections. Uh, Temecula's on the map. Like People know what's going on over here. So they've listened to the podcast. Um, they want to come on. And there's a lot of people I met that are running uh, some campaigns that have a lot... Uh, there's some interesting stuff going on with our city and Marietta City Council and stuff. So uh, stay tuned this year. We're going to... We're not holding back this year. There's no more, you know, no more nice guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thanks again for tuning in to all of our listeners. And if you're new, welcome to our podcast. We appreciate you consuming our content. And we're definitely going to step it up in 2024. So this episode is number 17. Jack Guerrero and I, we sat down. We talked about his goals and his story and where he came from. And I was thoroughly impressed. Enjoy, guys. PBT. Episode 17. All right, enjoy, guys. You ever wonder what is the truth? There go those two guys again. Why do they care so much about the truth? I honestly think their questions for the truth are problematic. Don't we all? Jack Guerrero, sir, thank you so much for coming. We're really excited to have you. Oh, excuse us, guys. Derek isn't here today. Derek uh, went away on a trip to Arizona, and he's a little delayed in his travel back. So it's just Danny and Mr. Jack Guerrero sitting here. Jack, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Great. Thanks a lot, Danny, for this opportunity to address your viewers. I'm really excited about uh, this upcoming race as well for county supervisor, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those issues here shortly. But let me share a little bit about my background, and then we can uh, probe a little bit further into my experience. But I am a native Californian. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. In fact, a small suburban city of L.A. County called Cudahy. It's a very small town, about 30,000 population. Very troubled city in a very troubled region. For reference, my neighboring city back there was Bell. And a lot of people have heard of the case of Bell. This was the town about 10 years ago that uh, featured a city manager paying himself $1.5 million a year in a town where the average income is $30,000. I mean, a really disgusting violation of the public trust. There was a big scandal. It was all over national news. This is about 10 years ago. The city manager ended up going to prison, and there was a big expose about corruption afflicting that entire region. So that's just the background. My high school 
for reference, was also ranked in the bottom 10% of public schools. Um, a poverty-stricken area, but um, you know that's uh, not all that uncommon for L.A. County, for a lot of the suburbs in L.A. County. So I was born against that backdrop. I went to all of the local schools, all absolutely decrepit, which is one of the reasons why I champion education reform and why I really believe it is the next civil rights issue of our day. When I finally graduated from high school, I wanted to go as far away as possible from Los Angeles County or from Cudahy and never look back. And I actually did that for about 15 years. And then finally, uh, in 2012, after stints abroad and working in New York City and in San Francisco, and after having gone to college, I went to Harvard and Stanford. And finally, returning back to California, I uh, decided uh, to go through the family home in Cudahy. My parents still have the family home. And I thought very naively at the time that I would pass through for a few months before figuring out what cool hip part of the west side I would move to. But it's very interesting, Danny, how God sometimes puts us in uh, places that we don't uh, anticipate or plan for. And so when I moved back to Cudahy, there was a corruption scandal that hit the city almost immediately after I relocated. And it was very similar to the case of Bell. Um, Corruption, uh, there were uh, a couple of council members that were indicted, arrested by the FBI, and subsequently served prison terms for bribery and all kinds of mismanagement. And so when that scandal happened and it was all over the news, I thought to myself, man, how terrible predicament for my neighbors in this area, my um, closest friends in the area. And I decided I was going to support a good candidate for city council. And so I looked and I looked and eventually nobody halfway decent was stepping forward And I decided at that point that it was the right moment for me to step up to the plate and run for city council. So I ran for city council. I was appointed mayor immediately. This was now 2013. And for the next uh, 10 years, I served in local government and championed all kinds of government reform efforts that we can talk about. Things like education reform, lowering taxes, uh, uh, fighting parcel tax measures, which are ways to circumvent Prop 13, actually, with very nefarious consequences for both property owners and renters. I took on even the marijuana establishment that was uh, trying to really penetrate a a family-friendly community. Yes, very poverty-stricken, afflicted with all kinds of issues, but it was still a family-friendly community with a lot of children, a lot of churches, a lot of schools, and it was just an inappropriate neighborhood to bring in marijuana dispensary. So I fought that with the churches. Uh, I took on uh, so many issues at the time. Um, One thing I'll also point out, and and this will segue into a little bit of my professional experience, but one of the things I did uh, right away when I became mayor was call upon the California State Controller, John Chung at the time, who later ran for governor, to come to my city and perform a forensic examination of the city's accounts. Now, professionally, I'm a certified public accountant. I've worked in finance my whole life, mostly in banking, uh, but in a variety of uh, financial roles. And so I knew coming into municipal government that I could be very helpful to the city from a financial standpoint. And so when I became mayor, I performed my own audit of the city's accounts and delivered to the state controller on a silver platter, basically, 
all kinds of findings, uh, decrepit internal control environment, um, and all kinds of financial mismanagement issues. And the controller finally came back with an authoritative report that anybody can Google to this day. And the controller, who was a Democrat, thanked me for finally standing up against corruption in that entire region. And I was responsible almost single-handedly for exposing about $20 million in unlawful uh, and illegal spending uh, that was um, part of the predecessor administration in that city. So that all kind of brings me to today. And, um, you know, one of uh, the reasons I'm running for county supervisor after having relocated to Riverside County um, is to bring that same discipline to uh, county government. Um, you grew, What was the name of the, the city? It's it's called Cudahy, C-U-D-A-H-Y. It's one of the poorest cities uh, in California. It's got um, a high poverty rate. I think about a third of the residents live below the poverty line. So it was it was really quite unusual for me to come back to that region after having... Well, I mean, it's also quite <laughs> unusual for you to go on and have the success as a young adult that you did from that region as well. I'm, I'm kind of really interested yeah, in hearing a little you. more about that, right? You said you left and then you studied abroad a little bit and yes, then you went to Harvard right. and then you went to Stanford. So how old were you when this happened? I guess? Sure. You know, I, I became conscious very early on about how unacceptably um, uh, unprepared really the scholastic opportunities were, you know, for children like me when I was growing up. I think I might have been in ninth grade when I realized, gosh, man, this high school that I'm attending has uh, very limited advanced placement classes, um, just low priority uh, for, uh, you know, helping students get on a college preparatory curriculum. And so when I was 14 years old and in high school, I decided that I would supplement my high school education by enrolling at the community college by night. So at night, I would take classes at East Los Angeles College and also at Los Angeles Community um, Harbor College, and I took courses in political science. What do yeah. you think it was that played the biggest role in your ability to understand how valuable that was going to be to you? Like, yeah. like well, well not, not yeah. 14 year olds don't think like, I'm gonna study at night and expedite yeah. this. In fact, it's funny because I think about, you know, this is the era before internet, before cell phones, and here I am, a skinny 14 year old, taking the bus number 260 all the way down Atlantic uh, Boulevard to East Los Angeles College late at night. It was like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night before my class ended. And, and I, and I kind of look back and think, what the heck were my parents thinking, letting me do this, you know, un, un, unattended, you know, un, un, unaccompanied. And, and, uh, but in all seriousness, I do credit my parents for inculcating the value of education pretty early on. I have mm-hmm. a, a memory of my father when I was about third grade, um, buying a Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedia at a used bookstore for a dollar a volume, and it was like a 1954 edition, and he handed it to me as a gift and said, you know, I really want you to take education seriously and to go to college. And he even at one point uh, was researching colleges and said to me, and I, I might have been nine years old, and he said, oh, Jack, I want you to look at Stanford and Harvard universities. I think those are really good schools for you. And uh, later in life, how providential you know all of this is, but I ended up attending both universities and studying. And, and so that was... Uh, really, really special for me. But but I, I do recall when I was in high school, I, I just had this raw ambition 
for self-improvement. Uh-huh. And I think part of it might have been just growing up in poverty and having, um, you know, having just kind of a, um, a rough um, upbringing. Well, um, well in, in those in those types of environment, especially when you're young, you have to learn things very quickly that don't develop where if we if we grew up in like a suburban neighborhood, like you have to learn that like situational awareness. And there's this uh, there's this rawness right to like that that type of environment that a child either has to adapt to or, you know, there's a chance they won't make yeah, it. You know? Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. The other thing that I, I think played a, a role was that there were I gravitated towards other young people that similarly aspired to go to university and so when I surrounded myself with other you know friends that all also wanted to go to university it it became a lot easier to really commit to that track yeah so to this day when I, I go see. back every once in a while and speak to elementary school students or junior high school students and you know kind of orient them about college I I always tell them as a as a point of advice that they should find the smartest kid in their class and be his or her friend because i think uh, there there's a way that uh, you know surrounding yourself with with like-minded people can have a reinforcing you know perspective on your own it's true, on your it's, own it's goals very true. there's a spanish saying it says enséñame con quién andas y te enseño uh-huh. quién eres yeah. show me who you're around with and, and I'll, I'll show you who you are. are and i think there's a lot of truth to that to to be For honest sure. so as a young as a young boy i i gravitated towards you know kids that that had ambition to improve and and go on to college and and I knew in high school um, that um, I, I just didn't have a good high school opportunity. And so I, I had no choice. I mean, this was before charter schools. There was no such thing as a charter school back then. There were some magnet schools, but it was a um, really complicated application process. And the schools were, you know, way across town, you know, hours away. So it just wasn't practical for my parents to really find alternative education for me. And I, I can tell you that my high school was ranked in the bottom 10% of public schools according to a school accountability report card that the Department of Education in Sacramento publishes every year. Mm-hmm. So I knew looking back, gosh, man, I was really shortchanged. And I, and I, you know, I really take education reform very seriously because I lived through a decrepit public education mm. in one of the most mismanaged school districts in the United States of America. And it's something I take very, very personally, for sure. But I, through the grace of God, I was able to survive wow. uh, a high school in an inner city. And 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 uh, did you? Would I? I can. You know, you're a man of faith, obviously. Yes. Did you? Gr- did you grow up? Yes. Like that as well. That's right. My parents are Catholics, uh, uh, traditional Catholics, and so even though we grew up in poverty, in some ways, um, it was a rich upbringing because my parents. Uh, inculcated good values, you know, carrying myself with modesty, respecting my elders, uh, treating other people with respect. I mean, those kind of core um, values that um, you know we all want to inculcate for children yeah, yeah. were were very uh, were omnipresent in my home, and so I do credit my parents with at least you know giving us a, a you know a loving environment, and in the case of my father in particular, really promoting education at a very young age. Yeah, now, yeah. my parents were both farm workers originally they moved uh, to california from mexico in the 70s uh, my father had been here actually way earlier because he was a bracero in the u.s uh, guest worker program along with my grandfather so they came here uh, legally in um, the 60s bracero was a was a bracero a bracero this this program no longer exists uh-huh. but it was a program that the united states implemented when a lot of our young men were off at war um 
Uh, this goes back to actually World War II when a lot of a lot of our our labor really was occupied in you know these foreign conflicts, and so um, there was a need for you know people to work the fields and work manufacturing and work in you know building the railroad well, in I different parts of the work country. Yeah. yeah, and so wow. there was this this formal guest worker program that brought a lot of labor from Mexico in a in a very legal way, and 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 then they worked, and then many of them went back back home to Mexico. So mm-hmm. my grandfather and father both participated in that program mm-hmm. and that was their foray into, you know, the United States really. And then in the seventies, my father came back, um, uh, with my mother. And then I was born, uh, soon thereafter. And, um, and, and my parents before I was born had settled in the central Valley of California, picking lettuce, tomatoes, and grapes, uh, very laborious work. In fact, I do think of my father as uh, a very hardworking man, one of the, the hardest working men I've ever met. And uh, that uh, work ethic was um, very important to me. They they later, my parents uh, relocated to Southern California, to Vernon, which was, um, uh, still is kind of an industrial epicenter in Los Angeles. And they basically worked as, as in, in the factories of Vernon. And then Cudahy is a neighboring city to Vernon, and, and then they ultimately settled in Cudahy. And that's okay. where I was born and raised. I see. Yeah. So then it, at what point, where, where was the first, when you left, where was the first place that you went? So after high school, so so going back chronologically, 14 years old, I supplemented my high school education, went to East Los Angeles College at mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. When I was a sophomore in high school, I then enrolled at the State University by night. I went to Cal State LA um, by night. Um, I was still in high school, so I would take math classes at the at Cal State University and then and then take the bus all the way back through Monterey Park and then switch uh, uh, this it was called the RTD back then but it was basically the the metro bus system in Los Angeles and and again I, I just kind of marvel at how my parents let me do that I, I just so I would never let my children do that in Los Angeles not certainly not today yeah not now and yeah. so I, I I did that when I was uh, when I was a sophomore in high school and then between Sophomore and junior year, I studied at Stanford University in the summer. It was a, a program for high school students that was called Stanford Summer School. And then between my junior year and senior year, I went to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. to study. And I also marvel that, you know, my parents had no idea. They had never heard of Georgetown University. They had never heard of Stanford University. And and here I am as a, you know, as a kid pre-internet, you know, just finding uh, resources to facilitate these academic endeavors and so I was very very fortunate in that sense and that just opened my my eyes uh, and my world to life outside of Cudahy and so when I graduated from high school I went to Stanford University in Palo Alto in the Bay Area studied economics um, and public policy and um, uh, spent a year abroad in the United Kingdom as well uh, when I was a junior abroad I went to Oxford and studied the history of economic oh, man, thought that's really cool which was an amazing experience it was my foray into the classical economists like um, Adam Smith and David Ricardo and Frederick von Hayek and Milton Friedman and it just it just really opened my eyes to kind of the value of the free market uh, and the pernicious consequences of government meddling in the private sector, both empirically and philosophically. So that was a, a wonderful experience abroad. Then I came back to Stanford, graduated, um, moved to Spain, where I taught economics at the University of Navarre for a year, and then ensued on a uh, multi-year career in public accounting with uh, the large CPA firms like KPMG and later Ernst & Young. And then I uh, decided to go back to school, so I went to Harvard to get my MBA. 
and then worked at the United States Department of the Treasury under President George W. Bush, and then uh, later worked um, for the American Express Company in New York, and then in London in corporate development, which is kind of the merger and acquisitions group for American Express, and I worked on a lot of joint ventures with other companies, divestitures, acquisition of payment processing companies, et cetera. Uh, a, very much a, a Wall Street job in, in some ways. And, and then I decided to come back to California. Like most Mexican kids, I can't be away from my parents for too long. <laughs> so I wanted to come back home. And then I, uh, uh, that's when I, I kind of resettled back in the LA area and, uh, and uh, uh, embarked on, on a career in banking. Um, I, I now work for US Bank. I'm an economist in the corporate treasury department. If you don't mind me asking, so how yeah. many years was it would you say, I don't know if you've ever even yeah, thought about this, from see. the time you left to the time you came back? From uh, the time I left high school, okay, I went to college. Um, so it was about eight years before I came back to Los Angeles. I had a very short stint with uh, KPMG, one of the, the large firms. And then immediately I, I moved uh, to Switzerland with KPMG uh, and worked uh, with one client, Credit Suisse Group, at the, at the time. And then I didn't come back to Los Angeles until... Um, uh, like another 10 years. So, okay, okay. so th it was a combined period of about 20 years yeah. away from LA with a very short stint in LA that was about a year. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So for all intents and purposes, I was really away yeah, yeah, you for were, a big chunk of my life. It was, it's a new place when you come yeah, back. It's definitely. a completely new place. And you know, my grandparents were getting older. I have nephews and nieces that barely recognized me. And yeah. So I was like, you know, I, I want to come back home. I, it was the right time. So I, I came back, I worked, um, in Century City for a small boutique investment bank and and then later uh, moved into into the banking sector with Union Bank and later with US Bank. And concurrent with all of this, I had my foray into politics. Mm -hmm. And that was because of the scandal that happened in the city of Cudahy in 2012, which led me to run for city council in 2013, get elected, become mayor. And then that, that began, you know, kind of a, a parallel career in politics for the next 10 years. But you know what's so interesting about that, and I think that this is the swing that our, our country's experiencing, yeah. is you didn't do it because you had political goals. No. You, you did it because you came back home and you saw a problem and you immediately wanted to get involved and you started searching for people that are gonna step up and you didn't like what you saw, so you took ownership of yeah. the problem. I and and then and then you performed. You got you 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 got in the position because when when you were you running for mayor or how does that work? Do you get so, elected and then they decide who's gonna? How does that work? In most cities in California, um, and we have over four hundred cities in California. The vast majority of cities are what what are called general law cities, and in those cases, you elect a board, a city council. And, and then the city council members appoint a mayor who is first among equals. In other words, the mayor doesn't have any more authority, authority than uh, uh, legislatively than the other council members. The mayor just becomes essentially the chair of the board, runs the meetings, yeah, okay, things okay, like that, but it. has the same vote, equal vote as everybody else. Now, there are some cities that are charter cities that have... Um, more uh, unique circumstances like the city of LA or the larger cities and they will have uh, a mayor that has more of an executive role. So very distinct kind of structures but but in the case of Kadehe it, it was a um, city council election so you get elected to the city council and then the council members appoint a mayor and I was appointed mayor right away from the start. But I, I got to tell you when, when the scandal happened in Kadehe 
the uh, the issues were were so um, um, uh, you know absolutely concerning. Um, the uh, board uh, at the time had very little academic preparation. I, I I think only one of the five council members had gone to college. One of the council members didn't speak English. I mean, how are you expected to read contracts and make educated decisions if you don't speak English? If you don't speak the language, so I thought that that was. Uh, just a, t- a terrible situation, poor leadership, and not only incompetent leadership, but unethical leadership, because two of the council members were uh, subsequently indicted for bribery. They had received uh, bribes from the marijuana industry, and, and they were caught up hmm. in a sting operation, and the FBI got involved. One of the council members barricaded himself on a like a five-hour standoff. I mean, this was made-for-television stuff, <laughs> absolutely made. So it was all over the news, and, and at the time, I was like, Man, this is what what year so was this? So sad. 2012. 2012. I had just relocated to Los Angeles, and I thought, "Gosh, this is this is so upsetting uh, for me, for my for my neighbors, for you know people I grew up with in a city that I cared about at one point. You know, this is just unacceptable." And I really looked for somebody to run for city council that I could support because I had no interest in running at the time. But when nobody was stepping up to the plate, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I'm a CPA. I know finance. I could at least be helpful when it comes to financial management. And so I prayed about it. And for me, coming from the private sector, it came with a lot of self-sacrifice. I mean, uh, as you know, you know, those of us that have lives outside of politics, you know, to get involved in, in, in politics comes with with uh, a lot of sacrifice. I mean, uh, you have family commitments that get compromised. In my case, as a professional, I was foregoing opportunities in the private sector to dedicate myself to uh, public service. And, and those were, you know, serious uh, considerations. And I had to really pray about it. And after looking myself in the mirror, I determined that it was the right moment for me to step forward and really try to serve my constituents. And I have this recollection still of when I when I was starting to campaign in those very early days of a of a lady who's um, 80 years old. I mean, probably mid 80s, uh, uh, and reminded me of my grandmother. Didn't speak English. Didn't go to Harvard. Doesn't read Edmund Burke or Adam Smith. Just a very simple woman who was tired and fed up with the corruption in that whole region. And she looked to me with hope for the future. And she said, Jack. You know, I don't know what it is, but I, I know I can trust you. I know I can trust you. And I always think about that woman because that trust from the public is is so important. And I, I don't ever want to violate that kind of trust when 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 people very humbly place that in me. And so I look back at my time in Cudahy over the course of 10 years, everything I did, um, never once did I accept a single penny from any vendor, consultant, contractor, or uh, business that uh, was uh, involved in that region because I thought it was unseemly. I thought it would be unethical. And, and so I always carried myself uh, with um, high ethics and I really used my background in finance as a CPA to really, um, really provide the best, the best uh, insight into the internal control environment of the city and and make educated decisions. And it wasn't, it wasn't an easy ride because um, because I was the only um, conservative really on the on the council at the time. Uh, there, uh, you know, for for most of the ten year uh, duration I was there, I it was a four to one council, and I was the one. 
mm-hmm. for most of that time. But I got a lot of things done and people are always marveling at, Jack, how the heck did you do that? How did how were you able to lower taxes? How were you able to fight parcel tax measures? Uh, you know, what 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 was it about your your uh, you know, your situation that allowed you to be successful? And um, to be perfectly honest, a lot of it had to do with getting to the truth and exposing it. It's it's remarkable how effective that strategy is mm-hmm. when you when you gather evidence and facts, especially when it when it comes to finance and and then expose it and put a spotlight on it. It's very hard to argue against against that. Oh, but they still do. They, they still, still do. do. Yeah, yeah they know? sure do. <laughs> they, they sure do. But there were a lot of times when when uh, when that that became a. Uh, um, so clear that that the public rallied behind me, and yeah. and a lot of the council members were like, they just folded. They were yeah. like, it, we we just can't really, in good conscience, fight fight this. Other times, I I didn't have support from the council, but I would circumvent the council. So I would go, for example, to the California State Controller or to regulatory authorities outside of uh, the city, and and those were always good checks and balances. The district attorney's office in Los Angeles had a public integrity division. Oh, and, wow. And, I, and you can do that. You, if, if there's shenanigans going on, anybody from the public can file complaints with the district attorney's office, and they're required to at least investigate the complaint. And, and that was also huh. kind of a good check and balance when it came to uh, shenanigans. And, man, there, there were so many things that I, that I learned about bad management from my predecessors. Like, for example, we, we had all kinds of corrupt and crooked contracts. Um, there was one... Uh, I'll just give you one example. There was one contract as I was, you know, a new mayor coming into the city. I was I was looking at all the books and looking at all the contracts that we had. And and I remember coming across one that involved a lobbying firm that was on a retainer. They were getting paid like five thousand dollars a month. And I remember asking everybody, what does this company do for us? And everybody I would ask would be like, Jack, you know, I really don't know what they do for us. And then I would ask the old city manager, you know, what, what, what does this company do for us? You know, Jack, I really don't know. So it was like that movie Office Space, if you ever saw that. The <laughs> yeah. guy with the stapler who had been fired like 20 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he was just through a glitch in the system, you know, he was continuing to get paid. And so it was the same thing. It was like this contract that through some glitch in the system was still getting paid and they weren't doing anything for us. So that's an example of a contract that I was like, this has got to go. This has absolutely got to yeah, go. And you know, I'd imagine like, you know, it sounds ridiculous, right? But when you experience it and then you think about it, competence is important in all sorts of positions. Yes. So a lack of competence in a high a position of high authority. Yes. You can make mistakes and let things slip and five thousand dollars to a you know, a, another company that wasn't doing anything, like that's an easy mistake for incompetent leadership. Absolutely. I always tell people when you consider candidates to vote for, look for two things that are really important. One is is the candidate ethical? You want to always elect ethical candidates. But the other important consideration is, is the candidate competent? You don't want to elect somebody who's ethical and moral, but doesn't know what he's doing or what he's asking. You want to elect somebody that um, has the right ethical disposition, but also knows what to ask for and and how to navigate the system in a, in a very uh, effective way. And so those are two criteria that I think are are critical 
and and that's really what I present as a candidate today as well. But it's it it was um, it was quite quite a, a ride. I uh, uh, got heavily involved with with the California State Controller and. And uh, and in Cudahy, the the controller came in and, and performed a forensic examination and and validated almost every finding that I delivered to the controller. The L.A. Times wrote an article about me and about my endeavor with the controller, and it was one of the few examples of a left wing newspaper writing favorably about a conservative elected <laughs> official. And by the way, just more on the demographics of Cudahy, it was a ninety eight percent Hispanic community with um, about ninety percent Democrat registration. Wow. So I was a unicorn for sure. And I was the only Republican elected official in a seven city radius. That's like no Republican elected official between Temecula and Anza, you know, like just nobody. Yeah. It was just me for yeah. better or worse. I was the face of, you know, the Republican Party in a way because yeah. because I was it. I yeah. Was, I was completely it. Isn't it funny how when you just stand on the truth and not your ideology, yes. you become hard to ignore. Yeah. When you stand on morality, when you stand on your integrity, essentially, when you when you do your job with integrity, no one can ignore you. Your your political leaning almost doesn't even matter anymore. For me, in, integrity is a big thing. It's like, does this person have integrity? And I think we're seeing this throughout our country, which is why Donald Trump is such a popular uh, presidential candidate is yeah, because right. he's not like this lifelong politician. Right. And I think we're seeing a lot of people step up to the plate that really weren't interested in politics. They just saw problems and they wanted to get involved. I wanted to ask you, when you were done as a mayor, what was the biggest thing that you had wrong going into the position? Just how ineffective government is in, in, in general. Um, Everything moves so slowly, and that was a big frustration for me. I mean, coming from the private sector, you know, management is held responsible when, you know, companies are not delivering on on goals and and uh, and and achieving, you know, the, the right expectations from shareholders. There's a there's a real uh, uh, incentive for management to get it right in in corporate environments, but in the government sector, nobody really pays a price for getting things wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly government bureaucrats don't. And so I don't think they care as much uh, because they don't have much on the line, really, with failure. Um, and so that's a regrettable situation. And then you compound that with, um, you know, the the um, the need to have to build consensus with your colleagues. And, you know, sometimes that leads to um, uh, it leads to a, a very slow process to affect change. I'll give you one example. When I was uh, on the on the council, I observed these clauses in certain contracts called evergreen clauses. They are very common and they are very unethical. Um, they exist in the county of Riverside. It's one of the things I want to fight against when I, when I uh, become a supervisor. Uh, but what essentially this evergreen clause does is it um, automatically renews contracts behind the scene. So for example, if the county has a contract with a trash company, that's for 10 years. An evergreen, evergreen clause means that um, when the contract reaches expiration, it automatically renews. You don't have to bring it up for a vote. It just behind the scene, it automatically just keeps going forever. Hmm. And so those are very unethical because every contract that gets extended should come before the public so that the public is aware of what you're doing. So this happens 
all the time in government, unfortunately. And we found that in in Cudahy, I thought no way this would happen in in uh, you know in other in other settings. It, it almost works completely against the idea of a free market because then there's no that that company doesn't have to get better or do their job That's any right. better because there's nobody they're competing against now once the clause exists. That's right. So. Uh, so I found working in government to be very challenging in that sense. Hmm. C- contracts were not ethical. You know, the the governing process was slow, uh, and and that was very frustrating. That was my biggest frustration in hmm. in government, definitely. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a lot of people's frustrations too. Is like I think that a lot of people see unethical practice, and then we we just talk about it. Everybody just talks about it online, and then that's it. And then it just it just dissipates. Um, yeah. And I've, I've talked before with people about how like, okay, in the Marine Corps, if a PFC just throws a grenade, you know, in, in a crowd, that PFC is going to be held accountable to the full extent of the law and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Yeah, right. Our elected officials, I feel, should be held to that same standard. I don't think, I think they should be held to an even higher standard. This is why I agree with you that having somebody who's competent and ethical in the position is going to be able to think effectively. For sure. Let me give you another example because th- this is very relevant even today now that we're facing so many issues with the schools. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah. But, but when I was uh, on the council uh, and I was mayor, we had a situation where some of the local schools were failing the kids, 75% failure rate in the exams. A lot of the kids couldn't read or write or perform basic arithmetic. I mean, complete failure factories. And a lot of the parents were complaining. They were demanding change. The administration was closing the door in their face, uh, literally and figuratively. And they came to me for help. And when I considered what we could do on the city to help the parents, I was told by the political class to stay away from the schools. They would say, Jack, you're not on the school board. Hands off the public schools. But let me tell you, Danny, even though it was not within my formal jurisdiction, it was certainly within my moral obligation to get involved. And what I did was unthinkable. I I held public hearings on the quality of education in the local public schools as a mayor at the city council chamber with people testifying at the microphone. And after a long hearing, we indicted the local schools as failures. We had resolutions that we published. And again, we were not a school board. We had zero authority over the schools, but we still took on the school issue in a very public forum and indicted the schools with formal pronouncements and resolutions. And let me tell you how effective that was, because immediately after we did that, the school board in Los Angeles Unified School District summoned me to their headquarters in downtown LA. We met at the table, discussed the concerns, and a few days after that, the principal of one of the troubled elementary schools was removed, and the rest of that administration followed course in short order. And it's Mm. an example of what can happen when you as an elected official go a little bit of outside the boundaries of your purview. See, but I talk about this all the time. I think that that's, (laughs) okay, as a leader, your obligation is to your subordinates. Mm-hmm. Your obligation is not to your leadership. So as, a, as an elected official, I feel like that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to circumvent the wheel where you can if it best 
meets the needs of your constituents. You're an elected official. You represent the people of the community. Mm-hmm. And however you have to do that is how you should do that. We have so many politicians that just want to climb the ladder of politics mm-hmm. and be rubber stamps. Say, oh, yeah, we'll follow yeah. along. We don't want to rock any boats. And um, I think we're, we're America's tired of it. I, I really do. I think so, too. Absolutely, man. There, there are so many... Uh, uh, corrupt politicians or incompetent politicians or business as usual politicians that just want to play the game. And it's intoxicating. I'll tell you that. I mean, to me, a, a steak dinner doesn't impress me. But to a lot of local politicians, you know, um, the, the vendors and the consultants and the contractors and the developers, they all know how to curry favor with the politicians. And when you have these young politicians, especially uh, that uh, enter, you know, sometimes with some idealism to the role they can become uh, corrupted very easily because a lot of these very sophisticated vendors and contractors and consultants really know how to come in like vultures and you know start treating the uh, the council members very lucratively and that never impressed me and i was able to withstand all of those pressures but a lot of council members don't and and it's very interesting to see almost the correlation between campaign donations that go to politicians and how they vote in favor of their benefactors. What do you think about, because uh, this started with the whole school board stuff, oh, yeah, and, right. and um, what do you think about what's going on socially in our culture, in our society, in our country? Is this a social war? Would you call it that? What, 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 yes. what is going on? I think so. It's a culture war for sure. And I think we're uh, hitting a um, point of inflection here very, very soon where we as a people in this state are going to have to make some very important decisions about what direction we want for ourselves. And I think it's all coming to a head because the governor, the corrupt state legislature have taken, uh, uh, you know, the impetus here to uh, absolutely go after our children in the most um, unimaginable ways, in the most... Uh, corrupt and immoral ways and parents are starting to wake up finally to this kind of corrupt agenda there's some legislation that recently passed for example that allows uh, children as young as 12 to undergo surgeries without parental consent or notification Uh, ab665 which is almost appropriately named is what i what i said once before but but it's uh Uh, That's just one example. There's also legislation that allows the governor and the Department of Education in California to dictate uh, what's going to be in the curriculum, what the textbooks are going to contain without any kind of insight from parents. Uh, And I think that that's unacceptable as well. So there is definitely a culture war that's going on. It's pernicious. It's nefarious. And because it targets children, it's almost a generational fight in a sense, because if the corrupt establishment is successful at inculcating their values onto children, you know, that that has a pernicious consequence that lasts a generation. I think it was the Third Reich in 1930s Germany that pronounced, if we can take your children, we can take the future. And so I think I think that's a very dangerous agenda that's going after the children. That's just one example, but you just have to look at the quality of life beyond schools to realize that uh, you know there's a lot of deterioration that's happening in our in our streets with homelessness and drug use and fentanyl crisis, and you just go right down the list, and it's a very very dangerous situation that we're facing. And and so it's about time I think that uh, people stand up and uh, exert their values and challenge 
politicians to do the right thing. And I think this moment in time calls for elected officials that have backbone, that have moral rectitude and fortitude to stand up to the establishment and advocate for the people. And I think that that is something that uh, needs to be uh, more uh, well represented, and and it isn't at the moment, unfortunately. We've got a lot of um, weak-minded elected officials that are not really doing a service to the people. You know, it's it's funny. It's been this weird thing through the years where they draw a line and they say, I need you on this side of the line. And everybody, most of us are, you know, logical. We're not, you know, too far either way. We all say, oh, that's no big deal. We'll do that. And then over years, as that progress, you end up eight miles down from yeah. where you started. I mean, even in the beginning here, we talked about your parents let you get on the bus and go to college as a high school student, how we would never let our kids do that. Yeah, today. That's exactly. how, yeah, that's how far yeah. our society and our culture right. and, and how dangerous things have been. And it's it seems normal to us because it's been a slow erosion through the existence of our lives. But if, if you just look at that fact alone, I used to get on my bike and just leave on Saturdays. Yeah. My kids can't do that. You know, who's letting their kids do that in today's culture, you know? Yeah. So and 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 not that not that Temecula is a bad place, but like even in Temecula where it's not a bad place, I don't think it's appropriate for my kids to do that. Why? Because I understand the reality that exists that's out there. We all do, but then we avoid it in certain we, we ignore it in certain circumstances when it benefits our ideologies or something that we want pressed on society. It's just people want to be left alone yeah. and um yeah. There is. It does seem like there's this culture war and just one aspect of it is the attack on the children and and people need to stand up. You don't have to stand up and run for your local, you know, uh, elected position, but you can just stand up and show up, stand up and say something and speak out. And I've seen you at a lot of the the school board meetings. You're always a speaker, which is which is uh, really wonderful. But where is everybody else? You know, there are three candidates in this race for supervisor. Where are they? You know, why aren't they at the school board meetings speaking out? You know, yes, it may not have a direct scope within the purview of a supervisor, but as a public official, we're all called to stand up and reflect the values of the community, especially when they're being challenged by the establishment. And so I think it's incumbent on all the candidates to really come and speak on behalf of the people. And I'm the only one doing it. And I think that that's regrettable because I think we all have a moral responsibility to do that. But there are also some things in the supervisory scope uh, or the county supervisor board responsibility that do affect children like child protective services, like the county library system. I was in Murrieta campaigning recently and a woman told me that there's sexual content in the county library system for children in in the books. And I think that that's totally unacceptable, especially if they're not letting parents know about this. I mean, children can walk into a county library and check out sexual sexually explicit content in books. I, I have a buddy who's a little bit more left-leaning, and um, I was talking to him briefly about this, and he was very dismissive of it. What books? What books? And I sent him these books that were at our, our, our book fair, our yeah. daughter's middle school book fair, um, and he agreed. He said, yeah, I think this is inappropriate because it looks like it's it's a cartoon depiction. What is what are we doing here? You know what's going on? It has nothing to do with um, if it's gay or trans it has nothing to do with that. Even the the straight 
uh, the heterosexual relationship that's depicted in the drawing I thought was inappropriate. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't want my kids looking at that. Who does? What What are we doing? You know. So um, that's. Uh, sorry, I get. I get. A, I get. I a, I'm passionate about this because I, it really is. You know, I told you earlier that I. I'm just a veteran that wanted to be left alone. I want to raise mm-hmm. my family in peace. Yes. And I feel like people are trying to impede in that. that. I, I'm not going to let you just trample over. I'm not I'm not going to wait until it's happening to speak out against it. I'm sorry. That's right. I'm going to be a driving force against this type of indoctrination on our children. And even when it happens, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I wish That's more, right. more, um, more people felt like that, but I appreciate you. You know, I, I the other thing that Thanks, I'm Dad. noticing is when it comes to having a platform like this that hundreds of people tune into, um, less and less people want to be on it. But the people who do uh, will stand on their convictions. They're they're the real real leaders in our community. They're they're and I use my military brain right, but mm-hmm. they're the people who if we were invaded by a foreign country who would be on the street corners, you know, that the police are arming us and saying, get your weapons and patrol the street corner. They're the people who would step up, right? It's like, there are a lot of people, and I know that's an extreme example. I'm just saying a lot of people though would hide in their basements with the women and children and and that's okay too. But um, it's important for those people to come out now. You know, my life could be a lot easier if I were not in politics. I, it really would. <laughs> yeah. I could, you know, I could, I could, you know, I, I thank, thank goodness. Thank God. I, I have a, uh, you know, a comfortable job. I, I have a, a good income and, and I, I could, I could find a way to live around, you know, I could send ch- my children to private school and, and, or parochial school. I mean, I, I can find ways to live comfortably in the current environment, you know, to, to just check out of politics and use my resources to do the best that I could to live on my own. But um, there is something in me that um, calls me to public service because not everybody has that same that same situation. I mean, there are parents that can't afford to send their children to private school, right. you know, or or can't travel long distances to accommodate that, or don't have the resources to uh, you know live where they would like to live, or you know, or or, or send their children to the to the schools that that uh, you know that are that are safe and and uh, uh, and uh, you know, g- good quality. And it's for them that I need to fight. And I'm in a position in my life today where I can do that. Who knows where I'll be in the future. And so I think we all have to examine our station in life and do the best we can with our ability and with, you That's know, it. with, with the resources that we have to, to, uh, to contribute to the well-being of our fellow men. And so for me, that calling is today. And, and I, I feel compelled to step up to the plate. I didn't want that always to be the case. Um, and, you know, certainly before I got involved in city council, I, I was not thinking about city council. It's because of the circumstances around me that really compelled me to step up to the plate. So then, you know, fast forward 10 years from the time I was on council, um, at the end of 2022, I termed out of the city council position through my own doing because I wrote the ordinance on term limits when I was on the city council, one of the strictest, seriously, one of the strictest term limits in the state of California, two terms, lifetime, that's it. And then you move on. And so in a sense, I kicked myself out and I stand by that decision because I don't think that somebody should be in in any office for the rest of their lives. I think that the ideal situation is that you come from the private sector, you contribute in the public sector, and then you go back 
to your life. That's the way the founders of our country envision government, and that's the way I think it should work. If you're that good, do something else you know, with your service, but don't be in the same position forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a big believer in term limits, but I, I finished in, in uh, 2022, and I knew uh, for the year leading up to that that I wanted to move on from Southeast Los Angeles County. I knew that I didn't want to live next to marijuana dispensaries. I didn't want to live next to homeless encampments, next to rampant graffiti. I mean, I did the best on a 4-1 council to really fight change. And I and I had a lot of victories to show for it. But the time was coming where I, I really needed to move on. And so I informed my constituents that I was going to be moving on for a good year uh, before my my term expired. And I had been looking at um, this region in the Temecula Valley to call my new home. I um, have some ties to this area through extended family, my aunt and uncle, uh, purchased a home in the 80s in Temecula, b- back when you could see the stars, and, <laughs> and they raved about this area. And, and so I have a, a recollection as a young boy about uh, the Temecula Valley region. And in 2022, uh, during my last year on the council, I also ran for California state treasurer. I became the Republican candidate, the Republican nominee for California state treasurer, and I garnered four and a half million votes in the state of California. I had the second highest percentage uh, among all of the statewide Republican candidates. And I campaigned a lot throughout the state. And Temecula, this region, was um, one of the uh, one of the, the, the greatest uh, areas of grassroots support for me. And so it always kept uh, a special place in my heart um, during the campaign cycle. And I knew I wanted to kind of come back to this area post city council. So what so. are you, what are your priorities for uh Riverside, Riverside County. County. Yeah. yeah. So so earlier this year I I bought my home right so again I uh termed out in December I um immediately um put in an offer on a home in January and then moved in in March. And initially I didn't want to run for anything right away. I knew I wanted to get involved in politics and stay active, but I wanted to take some time to, you know, find the right moment in the future. But after looking at the competitive landscape and the other candidates that are in this race and after getting a lot of encouragement from grassroots folks here in this region. I I decided to to pray about it and, and think about it and 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 I think there are some issues that are not getting any attention in the county of Riverside and I'm in a very unique position to raise a lot of awareness about them. So some of the things I'm going to be fighting for are commensurate with my background, my skill set in in finance and 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 auditing uh, uh, you know kind of space and and one of the things I'm going to be shedding light on is the unfunded pension liability in the county of Riverside. Um, right now, I've calculated that we have an unfunded obligation of about $10 billion. Um, the county of Riverside um, uh, believes that that unfunded liability stands at about $3 billion. But if you extrapolate um, the um, uh, what CalPERS um, says about its unfunded liability and what Stanford University economists say about the entire unfunded obligation for the state pensions, pension funds, uh, and apply it to Riverside County, I really converge on a figure that's closer to $10 billion. The, the reason why there's such a large discrepancy is because of a discount rate that is used in the calculation. So for example, in Riverside County, we use a rate called, or a discount rate of 7.15% to basically uh, assess the valuation of the uh, of the pension funds. 
And that is an incorrect discount rate to use. We need to use a discount rate that is closer to the risk-free rate of return. When we do that, um, basically our liability balloons and we end up with an unfunded obligation that's closer to $10 billion. Nobody is talking about this. Uh, our total general fund is about $8 billion in the county of Riverside. And so the unfunded obligation, you know, pales, I mean, or, or significantly exceeds, you know, the, the size of the entire general fund. Hmm. There are all kinds of reasons for this. You know, we've got compensation schemes that are out of control in the county of Riverside. I don't know if you knew this, but there are dozens of bureaucrats in Riverside County who make half a million dollars a year in compensation. Now, I may be out of touch with the people, but I believe that half a million dollar compensation for a public servant is uh, is not appropriate. Hmm. I think that that's excessive. And, uh, and in addition, we've got about 814 people in the county of uh, Riverside who make more than a quarter million dollars a year in compensation. This is all uh, available on Transparent California. You can Google it. And I think that that's very irresponsible. You know, we're, we're really uh, not not monitoring this uh, in, in a responsible way. So I want to I want to ascribe some some uh, uh, attention to this. We've got a credit rating as well that is relatively unattractive uh, at double A negative, according to Standard and Poor's. Uh, we're actually uh, less attractive than most counties in the United States, um, even though it's investment grade. Um, it's it's what what really matters is how it compares to the rest of the counties and municipalities and government agencies across the United States because we're competing for the same pool of investors. And so uh, what that means is when we have uh, a rating that's relatively unattractive, we have to pay more interest to the tunes of to the tune of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in incremental interest. And that's going to Wall Street and, and it's you know to the detriment of the taxpayer. So I want to hmm. raise awareness about our credit rating our pension obligations, the excessive compensation schemes in this county. And these are things that nobody talks about. And I think I'm in a very unique position as a certified public accountant, as somebody who has audited the financial statements of government agencies uh, to really speak about some of these some of these topics. So that's kind of one broad category yeah, yeah. of issue that that I want to, you know, I want to really raise awareness about. I also think, as I mentioned earlier, that there's a responsibility for elected officials to um, sometimes step out of their purview and advocate for, you know, for the constituents. And and I think education is one of the areas where I, you know, I really feel moved to uh, stand up for constituents, even if it has uh, very, very little direct responsibility within the, you know, within the scope of the supervisor's role. And so I, I think we need elected officials in, in the supervisor's role that, um, you know, we'll stand up to the Sacramento establishment, and and I and I I feel equipped to do that, and I don't I don't see uh, the, the current uh, you know lot of supervisors doing that on behalf of the taxpayer, on behalf of the constituents. So I want to I want to take on that responsibility as well. Um, I also think that uh, you know growth in this region is a great opportunity uh, economically for the region, um, but it needs to be measured, and we need to have enough infrastructure to properly accommodate that growth. And right now, I think what's happening is, is we're, we're facilitating, you know, high density housing very quickly um, without uh, a commensurate, you know, adjustment in, in our, you know, local resources, our infrastructure, our green space, our, you know, transportation systems, our roads. And I think that that, you know, um, uh, you know, that um, incongruent uh, 
growth is going to present a lot of problems for the region. So I, I think it needs to be measured and controlled. And so I'm for growth, but I also want infrastructure to be, you know, developed in lockstep with that growth. Um, because um, if we don't, if we're not careful about that, you know, we're, we're going to be encroaching upon our, you know, our green space, our schools, our quality of life, you know, is, is going to be um, adversely affected. And so I think that, that, that that's an important commitment that I'd like to make as well. Is there anything that's going on right now or that's new that you see or are aware of that you like, that you would like to keep or improve on? Sure. I think there are some great aspects to the business climate that I support. You know, when I was back in Los Angeles County, the uh, average sales tax rate was about 10.5%, you know, in most of the cities of LA County. In Riverside County, it hovers around 8%. And I think that that's a great distinction from LA County because it means that if we, you know, if we do a good job as as uh, elected officials in this region, we can really, you know, we can really encourage uh, businesses from Los Angeles County to migrate over to Riverside County. We're a better business-friendly environment compared to Los Angeles County. Um, but even though we're, you know, LA County is, um, is, uh, 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 almost 10 times the population of Riverside County, their, their GDP is significantly, um, uh, greater than that, than that proportion. And I, and, and so I think there's, there's a lot of room for us to bring, you know, bring, uh, businesses, uh, uh, over to this region in, in a, in a really, in a really, uh, measured way. And, and I think, uh, I think the tax rates, for example, are, are, you know, one example of, of, of what I like about this region. I think the way we've handled homelessness is, is better. Our, you know, our DA and our sheriff, I think have done a really good job of, you know, creatively prosecuting, uh, you, you know, uh, fentanyl dealers in, in ways that the LA County district attorney wouldn't dare uh, do. So I think we've got some good folks here in Vers Riverside County. And, and I, I want to be able to, uh, to offer, you know, support from the board of supervisors and, and to also be, you know, eyes and ears for the taxpayer, uh, you know, when it comes to fiscal discipline. And we're a uh, area three, correct? Yes. Area three, which encompasses uh, cities of Temecula, Marietta, Menifee, Wildemar, uh, Anza, Awanga, and some of the unincorporated areas like French Valley, Winchester, East Hemet. Um, those, those areas are part of the, the district. Yes. I see. I yeah. see. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Jack. I really do. Um, Thank you, man. Um, um, I'm excited for you. I, I wish you the best. I know candidate. I don't know anything about candidate races, but I can imagine that they're extremely um, grueling. I'm sure you're talking to a lot of people and you're knocking on doors and doing things like that. Um, wh what would you say to, uh, you know, the residents of Temecula or even just all of Riverside County, uh, what would be your message to them where you would say that you believe that you're the best candidate for this position? You know, when I ran for state treasurer last year um, and garnered four and a half million votes across California, including 53% of Riverside County and almost two thirds of the vote in district three where I'm running for supervisor, you know, there's a reason why I was able to do that. And I think in large part, it has to do with shared values. You know, I am a conservative unapologetically. I'm a Christian. Uh, I support our children and our families. And I think that this is a moment in time when we need strong leadership with backbone 
you know, who is, uh, which is prepared to stand up to the Sacramento establishment, which is acting in the most, you know, in the most pernicious and nefarious ways. And I think that this is an opportunity we can't squander. We got to really elect good people. And remember earlier, I said, we want to elect people that are competent and people that are ethical. And I think I bring that unique combination based on my experience um, as a mayor, as a council member, as somebody you know in the private sector that uh, understands finance and understands budgets uh, to, uh, to really make a meaningful contribution to this area. And so I do humbly submit my, you know, my background for the voters' consideration. And you know what? If the voters are with me, I am all in, 100%. And if they're not, that's okay too. But I want to be able to present myself as an option, as an alternative to the voters of this county. Well, Jack, thank you so much. Super cool having you on. I'm excited we had you on the podcast. And uh, yeah. Thanks. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah. We'll see you guys later. Thanks for tuning in.